did you ever have a movie that really impacted you like when you were a kid oh, oh um, my god yes okay all right <laughs> i mean that's a hardcore turn yes yeah so, yeah well what was it nightmare on elm street 2 okay interesting is that the one with johnny depp is that the first I, don't re- I honestly don't remember yeah. i just remember freddie coming out of someone's chest and oh yeah yeah i i was 10 okay and i'm just it scared me so badly. I didn't sleep for like three nights. Well, I have to say, yeah, the the nightmare on, and I think the reason I said that is I, I think it was two was the first one I saw too. It was one or two. One of them had Johnny Depp. I, I do remember him being in the series. I just, I, they're all, that's so long ago. I haven't really watched any of them in a long time. Sure. And that it was of, I mean, it's the right age, 1985. It was released in 85. Um, yeah. yeah, Johnny Depp was in the first one. Okay. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. I thought he was in the, in the second one personally, but yeah, anyway, it doesn't matter. I, um, the movie for me was, and it's like looking back, it's, I'm a little embarrassed by it, but I was really young and, and was a movie that my parents would have never let me see, but I saw at like my friend you know, down the street, you know, I saw it at his house and it was poltergeist. And like, it's and the same kind of, same kind of deal. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, you know, I was like eight. And the funny thing is I remember very little from that movie. It took me years before I could watch it again because it just like had, had scarred my brain so deeply. Mm-hmm. And then I watched it as an adult. I mean, again, like I was, I probably, I was probably close to 30 when I watched it for the second time. And I was like, Oh, like, <laughs> hey, hey, all right. I still haven't watched Nightmare on Elm Street too. Yeah, well, I mean, I just, I, I, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> no, I, I ended up, I saw Poltergeist again, and I, I decided it was like, I want to, I got to see, like, if this is as scarring, you know? And, uh, but the thing about that movie that got me was, do you remember, you remember the tree? Are you, are you sleeping? You sleepy? There they are. Am I sleeping? Are you sleepy? What are you thinking, Mike? Too, too much sleepy. Sunday, too much Sunday fun day? Are you crazy? I haven't had a moment of rest for about a week and a half. Um, I am literally, I literally had about three mini nervous breakdowns this weekend. Hmm. I'm not even joking. That's I got uh, this big. I got this training week that I have to roll out this week, and it has been a fucking nightmare. I mean, it has been the most stressful time of my life. Okay. I'm not even joking. Like the most stressful time of my fucking life, and everything's falling apart around me. But uh, I'm gonna get through this. I'm gonna get yeah, through it. Yeah. Right, I'm gonna get through it. I hope so. Wasn't it wasn't this a job like two months ago when you recorded? You're like, man, this thing is great. <laughs> it's I'm my dream. Yes. This. Like, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And then they gave me this project. <laughs> and this project has been the bane of my existence. It's a, a dream job. Speaking of nightmares, right? It's a dream job that has become the nightmare. <sighs> Um, oh my god but yeah so i just want this this week to be over i just want this week to be over come next weekend i'm gonna be like the most celebratory motherfucker you guys ever want to be around all right like if we if we record next weekend it's gonna be like oh this this feels like it needs to be a thing like it needs to be a thing (laughs) yeah yeah, celebratory. Uh, you know, we'll we'll oh. see. Uh, we'll see if that's. Oh, it'll, we'll it'll see what happens. It'll either be depressing because yeah. he's, he's wanting to because I fell on my face. Yeah, yeah. We, we, yes, you're right. Or, 
it's a win-win for you and me. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we should record either way. Uh, you know, you're correct. To, yeah, one way or the other. <laughs> Right. Um, so, so just to finish what I was saying really quick, though, the, the thing we were talking about movies that impact us as kids, Poltergeist, it was Ooh. a tree because I had a yeah. tree outside my window that wow. was evocative of that tree. And yeah. I could see the shadows of that tree sort of <laughs> in your room, in my room. And I had that it had been there my whole life. It had never bothered me a single time. But then I saw that movie. <laughs> And and I could not do anything to make those shadows disappear because, like, I had curtains, and just like the way they the way they hung, there were just gaps between the curtain and the wall, and so part of that shadow would just come through. Oh man, I mean, it it really it was that, and then and then I so I remember laying in bed and just like and I couldn't I couldn't put that image of that tree eating the kid out of my mind, and then because you know I'm like it comes through the window like it's right there. And then awesome. the other part was I had a, we had a big tree in the backyard. And so like if I was out like in the neighborhood playing and, you know, and it was like, it started to get dark and it's like, you know, come home for dinner or whatever. I had to walk by this huge tree on my way up to the house. And again, like it was the same thing. I, re- I remember probably for a whole, that whole summer and maybe even longer where I would just be like walking home. And as I got close to that tree, I would book it full speed, you know, just as fast as I could pass the tree. Once it was like safely behind me, I'd just go back to walking. But like, I just like, I mean, I was compelled to just, uh, to just haul ass past that tree. Cause it was, I, I mean, that movie, I mean, and again, like when I saw the movie again, as an adult, I was just like, oh, okay, it's a, it's a tree and it's fake as all get out. But yeah, back then it wasn't, <laughs> I was going to say, but that scene, same with me, but except for that doll that was in the chair mm, rocking mm-hmm. next to the bed scared the bejesus out of me oh man that was one of the scariest parts when he was looking under the bed yeah and then he comes back up and that doll wraps him up oh man that that gave me nightmares <laughs> for sure for sure does that make poltergeist does that make poltergeist your movie that impacted you the most as a kid no i wouldn't say the most but it was definitely up there it's one of the ones i remember it was like poltergeist et so let's uh and, and just by yeah. the way i know we're gonna get into a little recap i might have a little hard stop at like nine ish, so like an hour and a half. You don't, uh, you don't get to do that. I know I don't usually. You don't, you don't get to do that. I, I, I just, I <laughs> you don't get to, you don't get to delay two and a half hours and then uh, and then I know, uh, demand a I know, hard stop. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. It's so bad form. It is. You you don't get form. you don't get to do that. You're, you you <laughs> you you will have to like a grown up suffer through it tomorrow. <laughs> suffer through the consequences yeah by allergies mike I, I don't so take wake up in the morning and go get yourself some uh-huh. leave cold inside this d uh-huh it's it's cold infused with caffeine d. and you will feel like a million bucks and you'll get three times as really? much done tomorrow so <laughs> clip That's this as well Let's like not leave it in there. Thank, thank you dr, I like I like dr. g money with the uh, i just got my prescription it. Uh, it's, no, it's over the counter too. They just want to make sure you're not using it to make meth. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I like it. On days I need to be productive, I do that. I mean, it's better than breadless, yes. right? Like, you know, it's yeah, like, yeah. I don't like that stuff. <laughs> I could take that stuff. What I need to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is kind of a happy medium. So, I like it. Good. Appreciate right. that. So on that yep. on that uh, happy note. 
Let me, uh, I'm going to get to the week. I was helping out a friend. Come on. No, no, it's great. It's great. Uh, (laughs) No, that's good. It's good stuff. Good stuff. Good stuff. (laughs) The doctor's in the house. Check out the stars later. It's really trippy, especially on weed, man. Then I said, barmaid, set us up around that Colorado Kool-Aid. While you're up there, bring this big fella here a box of Band-Aids. Huh. I expected the Rocky Mountains to be a little rockier than this. I was thinking the same thing. That John Denver's full of shit, man. Unbalanced. Come on now, Brian. That's pretty awful. Oh my god. <laughs> He's unbalanced. This guy is a lunatic. These men lived in a much different time. God, we got some kooky people back in this time. It's not obvious that we are professionals. You're not paying attention. We know what we're doing. <laughs> but I'm serious. Can we start already? All right. All right, uh, talent. Gotcha. All right. And, uh, paying attention, baby. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to Unbalanced Views of History, a mostly American history podcast. I'm Brian. I'm just a dude who has perfected the art of telling quick, iffy stories from American history. I especially love a good tale of misery and woe with a side of cannibalism. With me, as always, is my friend, a man who has sworn he will eat me if things get bad enough, though he won't promise to wait until I die first. It's Mike. How's it going, buddy? What's up? What's going on, my brother? Hey, we just missed uh, Savannah and St. Patty's Day. Brings back I know. Memories, doesn't it? It does. It does. Uh, but now you, you've said that, so I have to cut that out because you're ruining what I say later. So, sh- oh, shoot. Sorry, I didn't mean to ruin it. Like, no. I didn't even know I was ruining it. That's a good thing. Wait, I know. wait a minute. You, wait, you you can't steal my line. That's what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, here's how we roll. If, if you steal Brian's line, you just get edited right out of the show. Right? Then he's got the ultimate wow. power. He's like God. He just edits you. I, out. He's like, I, I am. I wanted uh, that line. Leave. So you're by the way, I, I am. Uh, I am intending. All be left in. <laughs> I just want you to know that I intend to. Uh, I intend to uh, put together a little music. Uh, and, and do a little voiceover singing, maybe even get Mike to do the voiceover singing oh, dear so, that, so that I can have a uh, a recurring clip called Misogyny Rundown with Mike. That's so, so crazy. I- That's just crazy talk. <laughs> That's crazy talk because I, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because I'm glad we can revisit this. Oh, God. In, in the previous episodes, That's when correct. I was attacked with these labels from Spur- spurious from lies. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was using an example where the mm-hmm. where a a woman and all women are, you know, really above everyone else as far as the power pyramid, and then I get labeled with that, which I think is just a little bit weird. It's a little bit unfair. I'm busting out Mike's misogyny rundown. They made the woman. They're beautiful creatures. I love all the women. How can that be a misogynist? 
I feel like I'm giving all the right answers, but they're not coming back as right answers. They're coming back as wrong answers. Isn't that someone who hates women a misogynist? Bring me to women. <laughs> I love the ladies. They just don't belong in the yeah. newsroom. <laughs> no, no, well, no, 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 not in the newsroom. On the on the on the halftime show at the NFL games. You know what I'm saying? Like every every sideline, every sideline reporter now is a woman because none I mean, of them are in my, the booth. I mean, you see why that is, right? Like you get that because they're not in the booth. So though they put them on the sideline well, to listen, be, you know. No, harassed by players anywhere on there. It's it's always been historically our man time. And uh, all right, now you get me back into that misogyny. Misogyny run down (laughs) with Mike. This is not where I wanted it to go. All right, this is not where I wanted it to go. I was defending myself. Now you guys tricked me. You you ever heard that? uh, You ever heard that thing where they say like, if you just you know just give them enough rope. Yes, I did. I just did that. I just did that. I set up set up saying myself. Listen, the best part listen. is you brought your own rope. That's the best. Let part. me tell you. All right, let me let me take this story back to where I wanted it to go. So, with the original comment I made, Brian, cut not here. This comment, okay, sorry. Not, not that story. Not that story. Not that story. But the original comment I made was that the women are so powerful. They always they have power over men, always mm. and all the time. The, in the case I, the example I used is you just go to the any strip club in America, and you see men just throwing all their money onto the stage, married men, happily married men. And th- knowing in their mind, they're never going to go home with this girl, but there's the, they have the power over that man that they will have him literally empty his wallet for them. Knowing so they have, they, so they have the power to cash in on being commodified. They, no, not, that's not a commodity. That's right. a power. Is that they're what, using that power to take what they want and get what they want. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and. I think in today's world, you're seeing that women in general are better leaders than men. And you see leadership teams, especially my friend Jamie Dimon, half of his leadership team are women. Half of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think the trends are, are going in that direction. I think they're a good direction. And I think that women in general, if I owned a company like that, I'd have a woman lead it. So I think that when I speak like that, I think it's undeserving to be labeled like, <laughs> You guys have done that, so that's my okay. that's my that's my soapbox. Your your your, ret- your retort is noted, and I'm just <laughs> and I'm just going to say a very disjointed. <laughs> great, joining us again. Hey, is you our- know what? This is where you go. Just when I thought you couldn't be any dumber, you go and <laughs> totally redeem yourself. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, uh, See that? Uh, back. He's back, baby. <laughs> Um, <laughs> see garrick don't you start the last one was a okay <laughs> joining us again is our senior colorado correspondent who is for some reason showing mike a butcher's chart of the human body and wielding a japanese steel meat cleaver it's garrick how's it going man this joke works really well disjointed i gotta say like the cannibalism works great when i have to split it up over 20 minutes <laughs> I mean, I got the I got the Donner Party reference, but yeah, it doesn't. It's going to be an interesting listen back. I got to say that, <laughs> my 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 friend. Um, this is not about the Donner Party. This is a callback to the last episode. So yeah, yeah, I wasn't paying attention. Sorry. <laughs> so <laughs> so for now, Garrick, can I uh, can I ask you to please put away your recipes from Starvation Trail commemorative cookbook because uh, we've got more important matters. So 
for our unbalanced listeners, we are recording this just before the NCAA men's basketball tournament tips off. And I want to make the wild uh. prediction that Fairleigh Dickinson will knock off Purdue in the first round, because, <laughs> becoming just the second 16th seed ever to defeat a number one seed. So, gentlemen, yeah, we'll see. That is my wild prediction. Let's see what happens. Wildly. Wildly. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Out on that limb. He's out on the limb, ladies and gentlemen. I, uh, I, to, I also should go look up the odds now and see what that looks like. I want to yeah, go ahead and yeah, roll yeah, the yeah, dice yeah, on, yeah. on Princeton as well. I don't know. I mean, I don't usually like to root for the Ivies, but I've got uh, this team feels like a sweet 16 team to me, 15 seed notwithstanding. So the Terps will, will beat Huggy Bear, too. The Terps will beat Huggy Bear for sure. I think <laughs> Tom Izzo is going to go to the sweet 16, too. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Anyway, all I know is Rock Chalk Jayhawk. They're uh, they're going to drop in the second round like they usually do if That's they don't true. win the national championship. That's just rude. Why do you got to make it personal? <laughs> if they don't win the national championship. <laughs> if they don't win the national title, they're going to lose in one of these rounds. <laughs> yeah, probably that the second. That might have been the most <laughs> profound thing you've said yet. Yes. <laughs> they're going to lose in the, one of these listen, rounds. <laughs> listen, listen. They don't call me the genius with the mind of a champion for nothing. Right. They, they. You could have just stopped genius with. They don't call me the, the genius mind of the mind of a champion. champion. Do you know how odd it is, by the way? Do you know how odd it is to find a genius but that has the mind of a champion? Like that's really odd. It, that combination is so rare. Sure. Yet, yet I possess I, it. Which is... I still don't even. I don't even understand what it means. <laughs> like, I know what those words all mean independently, but I don't know how they go together. I'm, I'm afraid to ask because we might end up being here for 20 minutes listening to this. We don't want to go down that route. <laughs> Can you succinctly tell us what that no. means within a minute? Okay. Your mind couldn't handle it. Trust me. <laughs> I am certain of this. <laughs> All right. Well, I have to say, I'm glad everybody's in a good mood because before we get going today, um, and th- this is going to get pretty rough. This is, um, I've been saying all along, this is going to be a rough story. Uh, the next two episodes will be, uh, oh boy, they're pretty rough to get through. So, uh, so it starts with this one. Um, so now more than ever, I think it would be good to start with a bit of laughter and a bit of sunshine to carry us through. So uh, let's uh, I'll start with I'll start with Garrett because you actually seem genuinely happy. Mike's going to have to come up with something. Because he's not feeling it. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so what's your sunshine, buddy? My sunshine is, uh, we just talked about it. It's March Madness. I yeah. love the, the opening weekend of March Madness is one of the glorious, possibly the yeah. best sporting event of the year. I always take either off Friday minimum or, or at least know that I got a light day. I blocked out my calendar this week, the whole sure. second half of my day, just because it's like, no, I'm going to sit here and... Just watch the madness, right? Yeah. It's fun. I agree. First weekend of March Madness is the is the best sporting event of the year when it's not the World Cup year. 
um, you know, just in terms of the stakes and the, it's, it's Mm -hmm. just so much fun. So much going on. It's the best annual event for sure. My dad and I grew up watching this together. We would fill out all the brackets. I would do my, what is it? The uh, science prize, the science fair where you had the, oh. the board, the cardboard cutout and stuff. Sure, when sure. I was done, I would take all that stuff off and we would put the brackets up on that board. <laughs> nice. And it would be like, you know, the odds makers, the, you know, the, you know, all nice. the different, the power rankings. And then we would compare our picks against there. Sure. So March Madness has always been cool for me. All right. Well, good. Uh, Mike, uh, do, do you, mm-hmm. do you have any sunshine or is your sunshine uh, looking forward to next weekend? My sunshine is on the horizon. Okay. That's what I'll say. It's on the horizon, all right? It's where the sunshine should be. Let me Um, tell you something. Next (laughs) week, when we record, you're going to hear the most joyous individual you've ever heard. Okay. Right now, it's on the horizon. (laughs) Right now, not yet. Uh, Well, in the the interest of brevity, I would just say we've had a – a really nice, uh, nice like week off of, of everything and, and visited some family and, and then got a little recreation in a little pool <gasps> time. And, oh my God. uh, I got a little, got a little tan line on top of my head from wearing, uh, wearing a hat I backwards uh, in the sun and not thinking the sun was strong enough to get a, get any color. So I got myself a nice white stripe across the, across the top of the head, That's which so is good. Awesome. So yeah, hey, we're just, I'll be down uh, your you neck know. of the woods. That's my sunshine. I was you talking said. down by your neck of the woods in May. Yeah, in May. May, uh, huh? I already bought my one ticket home. So May fifth to the eighth, May fourth to the eighth, something like that. May fourth to the eighth, something like that. I, I'll I'll be around. Are you um, be in Orlando? No, but you know that doesn't mean I. That it's not possible to figure out how to get to Orlando. Yeah. So, all right. So, with that all said, gentlemen, uh, in our last episode, uh, Mike was uncharacteristically silent. It was eerie, really. I've never seen a man so thoroughly mock and just sit there and not defend himself. It was very weird. Worst, worst he was ratings we've ever had. He was like George McFly. It was just <laughs> <George> awful. <McFly. laughs> but, uh, but Mike, hopefully you're feeling a little better today. Uh, miserable that you might be. And maybe uh, just, just as an editor's note, maybe chime in a little bit this time. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you now that I'm here. Uh, as I'm a, uh, edit, edit my, voice into the last one and just make you say silly stuff you know with the chat gbt you could do all that stuff now you know <laughs> i should have but mike i did want to tell you as a gesture of goodwill uh garrick actually made you a little present and Uh-oh. since this is an audio medium i'm going to share share it with you show it to you oh, and uh and for the people listening <laughs> which, you know it's a very flattering picture of mike that garrick framed out very nicely so that enjoy that buddy is that is great <laughs> there's a little I love hey, that. little that look into the, little look into hey. the future mirror buddy <laughs> <laughs> am i pregnant and how many months am i there is that seven months you look uh, awfully happy that's all I know. <laughs> it's a boy <laughs> that was right. for the picture that you dropped into into our drive folder oh, yeah. <laughs> i was like oh, okay be careful who you do this to <laughs> revenge is a dish best cold served cold right that i forgot about that i did i forgot about that that was a good one <laughs> So, Mike, uh, as I am sure you recall, especially, Garrick, you may have forgotten, but I know, Mike, you remember, last time we finished with the harrowing tale of the Blue Brothers, who went to Denver on a mission from God after James Brown took them to church. 
Now, I love unfortunately for the Blues, only one of the brothers, Daniel Blue, survived the Uh-oh. journey by eating his brothers and a stranger on his way to Denver in search of gold. We talked about pioneers and invaders. We talked about a lot of Williams. Too many Williams, if you ask me. Seriously. I, I mean, like, going through all this, I'm just amazed at how many Williams there are. Like, as annoying as it is for people that have, like, five kids with names like, I don't know, Braden, Caden, Hayden, Aiden, and then, like, Bentley Lee. or whatever, it's still better than everybody being a William. Wallace? William Wallace? <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, if it weren't for the movie, like, not, not right, like the hero we all think of. Anyway, sorry, just... Oh. Stop All it. I have to say is, and th- this will get me off my soapbox, <laughs> pick new names, people. Like, name your kids something other than William, for God's sakes. <laughs> so, so anyway, <laughs> one of the Williams, William Green Russell, found the gold. Another William, William Larimer, boosted the town of Denver, which was named after the Kansas governor, James William Denver. So, meanwhile, people with awesome I, names, like, yes. At least I live in Denver and not William. That's true. That's true. That's true. Uh, but meanwhile, the people with awesome names like Yellow Wolf and Conquering Bear started super friendly, but we're s- my dog uh, saw our shadow. So six more weeks uh, of winter. No. Um, by, the, by the way, we can't hear any of it. Okay. Well, so I do. Know. And it throws, I know. Me, but that's good. Just making sure you know. Yeah. All right. Anyway, guys with awesome names like Yellow Wolf and Conquering Bear started out super friendly, but... By the end of our story, they were starting to realize, uh, hey, wait a minute. These people aren't just passing through. They're an occupying force. So that's kind of where we left it. Too many Williams, not enough red clouds, and almost no Marys or Janes. Right? <laughs> Are you guys uh, up to speed? I don't know why I chose those two women's names. I'm not sure. Say, I've never heard he's a not enough red cloud. Like, <laughs> Too many Whoa. Williams, not enough red clouds. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And no Marys, no Janes. No Mary Janes. I'm going to refrain from going any further with my commentary. Okay. Well, then then what are you doing here? (laughs) Yeah, my best. No, it's because it's not, it's not good. It's my dark, the dark, the dark humor side of me that, I mean, I'm just going to refer to, I was going to fall into Mike territory and, and blend oh. a few, uh, that might not be the right oh, word either. I'm going to have to make a new, a new theme song is what you're saying. A second theme Come song. Okay, I got you. I'm going over to the dark, dark side. side. That's right. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so are you, Garrick again, Mike, I know you remember all this. Are you guys, uh, are you guys up to speed? Garrick, you up to speed? I'm good. Let's do it. I don't remember any of this happening in the movie, though. (laughs) That might be because you weren't at the last event. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, gentlemen, let's do some history. To bring us back up to to sort of where we left off, um, I'm just going to call him Green Russell, so I don't have to say William a thousand times. Uh, Green Russell's uh, expedition, you know, team, and another prospector named John Gregory made significant gold finds in the mountains near Boulder and Clear Creek. Russell Gulch, obviously named for Green Russell, yielded $35,000 every week and was worked by 900 men. But everything they found was still just gold dust. The mother load uh, underground was still higher up, and it was deeper underground than initially thought. So that meant that a different kind of operation was eventually going to be necessary. First, it meant heavier equipment was needed, right? To blast and bore tunnels, to sort and process, even stamp mills uh, and possibly refineries would be needed. Second, a permanent supply town 
was going to be necessary. Something close to the action, but also close to like rapid trade routes. So those two things are really important. Finally, the strikes guaranteed that there would be a permanent large settlement sort of at the foot of the Rockies. Mining operations were going to require a steady labor supply and then all the amenities necessary to supply it. So at least one of the Colorado boomtowns would end up being a permanent feature on that front edge of the Rockies. I'm guessing since you know where you live, you know which one of those boomtowns was like destined to be that permanent, you know, that permanent feature. There's a few I could guess, but is one golden? Well, no. It, well, yeah. Now, again, other cities will sort of figure out a way to survive in the aftermath. But like initially, I'm just talking about when they initially started finding $35,000 a week, that was the thing. They were like, well, at least one of these cities is going to stay. Because if you find $35,000 a week in dust, it means that there's gonna, they're going to find some significant gold somewhere. Right. I mean, that's a lot of gold dust to pull up weekly. And you're able to, you're able to employ 900 people, 900 men to pull gold dust out of the river before you've ever, you know, blasted through the surface. You're, you're going to be there a while. Like it's going to take you a while to get to it. You're going to need a, you know, and when I say permanent, I mean, I'm not talking like they're not thinking 200 years in the future. I'm talking like they're not thinking this is going to be a, a season and then done kind of a town, you know, like a lot Mm -hmm. of old Western towns were where they were. You know, they would boom because a resource was discovered and then it would be exploited and then they people would move on. So knowing that there had to be some permanent settlement, especially one on a trade route and all that, boosterism kind of explodes in the area. People envision the windfall if their town became the primary supply center, right? Like the best way most people make money during these gold rushes is like, by mining the miners, right? Be the you be the general store that provides the shovels, provides the picks, provides the sure. clothing, provides the the liquor, provides the you know the the prostitutes, whatever, it's provides the gambling. Job. Yeah, <laughs> they're the ones that that you know that make the 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 big money in the long term. So anyway, so all these little there are a bunch of little towns that pop up and they're all boosting. You know, they're little towns in hopes of being the, the place. Some people in letters and newsprint would actually denigrated uh, Denver City, calling it a shamble of small, poorly built homes half sunk in the mud. They complained about... (laughs) Yes. They complained about inflated prices, drifting crowds of Mexicans, Indians, and 'er ne'er-do-wells. They Uh, reported breathlessly on the first murder in Denver and the first hanging. What is that that word again? 'er Er, 'er 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 I'm like, wait a minute. What? Never used it. So, okay. So what, this is the way people would complain in the paper. They were like, well, there's too many Mexicans and too many Indians and too many 'er ne'er-do-wells, meaning like hobos from the East who've like come, because again, it's the the middle of an economic depression. So you do get a lot of kind of drifters that come into town and there's a lot of, and there's a lot of congress that come along with that kind of thing. But then there's also just a lot of kind of migrant, you know, migrant workers who, you know, don't necessarily have you, a reputation. You just rolled over this word like everyone knows what that means. Like I I'm, thought I'm ne'er-do-well literally... was a... <laughs> no. I'm like, Mike, were you as lost as me or am I the dumb one in the room this time? <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, no, sorry. No, I thought I didn't. I, I Thank you for stopping me. Yeah. Ne'er-do-wells are just like... I mean, honestly, ne'er-do-wells, generally speaking, we're, we're probably talking about um, people who may or may not be petty criminals, you know, uh, I mean, again, you know, minor stuff, petty crime, like survival stuff. Got it. Uh, but also just people without reputation, without money, 
you know, poor people rolling into town looking to try and, you know, make a buck, whatever. Yep. <laughs> Drifter, drifters, right. that sort of thing. Probably tent cities building up everywhere back then. Right. Yeah, something like that. I mean, honestly, something like that. Um, yeah. So, okay. It. But now, so while some, some people did this, right, some people reported on the downside of Denver City, others kind of started noticing the early signs of refinement in Denver, Denver City among the other towns. One Midsummer report noted 10 white women had arrived in Denver City. Marys and Janes, as it were. You see, full circle professional some people in denver city some people in denver city ate civilized dinners and of particular note there had been a proper christian burial of a good man a theater opened stores did too there was even a newspaper but maybe more important than any of this other than the white women new mexican whiskey gave way to more refined kentucky bourbon and brandy now, New Mexican whiskey was described as a clear, gut-wrenching drink that hit the brain like an artillery shell. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so people were pretty happy to have that sweet Kentucky bourbon, I guess. Um, now, I see you trying to it, I see you trying to bait me again. I'm not going to talk <laughs> bad about New Mexico again. <laughs> now, every town that that is developed, I mean, and this is true even today, any town that's developed needs some kind of narrative root, right? You have to have some sort of story for, like, the existence of the town. The story justifies its existence in some ways. And in this, Denver really led the way. Before there was a single law officer in Denver, before a post office was firmly established, Denver had a historical society. A historical society tells you the story of the town. Brief heroic histories of early settlements, Rugged, independent-minded, hard scrabble, but good men established the first camps. They told stories of gold discoveries, of early governance and democracy, and the social refinements of the day, like the theater and uh, you know, and other art uh, installations. Readers could learn about Denver's past. They were inspired by its future, and they marveled that Denver City had a chess club, a theater, and fourteen lawyers. Uh, let's talk about those 10 white women instead of any of that other stuff. So, you know, the Colorado historical society still exists mm-hmm. like, and they, and they put on events and they do all kinds of stuff. So sure. that's something that's still, it's a, expanded beyond just Denver, but the Colorado historical society still is very much prominent here locally. They, um, those pop up and exist all over. I mean, every, every state has a historical society. Most cities I'm have, sure. have one as well, but like, a lot of times, the, the, it's again, it's a sort of an overlooked thing. But when a ta- if you go back into this sort of town building period, the towns that establish them early, they get people writing the the history of the city. They get them, and and that's the roots. You know, that's that's what we all mm-hmm. cling to. You know, are the the roots of our existence. And so, you're it doesn't necessarily guarantee success or anything for boosting boosting your town, but it does certainly give you a leg up when you can tell a narrative i thought it was interesting that it still oh yeah exists no i I, yeah i believe it i believe it we um sorry in a previous episode we talked about uh when casimir pulaski the uh the 
the intersex Polish count that came over and fought in the American Revolution was uh, shot in the crotch with grape shot uh, and and died from his wounds uh, at the Battle of Charleston. The grape shot with his uh, with his testicular blood still on them. <laughs> resides at the charleston historical society but also the georgia historical society in savannah both both lay claim to the grape shot that killed him Um, uh i heard the episode you're good yeah yeah, yeah. well i know i know you did but uh but yeah the the grape shot and the grapes i got it the grapes and the yep (laughs) thank you that was the joke i was trying to get mike to make i couldn't believe he didn't take uh he never got it he never picked it up so i had to i let it go the coin grape shot it's grape shot <laughs> Come on, Mike. I'm putting it. It's, it's, I'm teeing it up for it's you just, perfectly. His, oh, really? Tea? That's what you're doing, going with next? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> it's just hanging out there. Just, just, just hanging. Hang right for the picking. <laughs> fair, fair. Fair point. It's okay. So, but anyway, let's, let's talk about those 10 white women because. Before white women arrived, um, as far as talk I about can, those ten white women, come on, yeah, ten like, hot little white like, women, baby. Like, let's talk about those ten white women. <laughs> before, before white women arrived, the scene Uh-oh. in Denver City was like uh, was kind of like Top Gun, you know, all homoeroticism, but you know, dirtier. <laughs> Where are the white women at? <laughs> hey, where are the white women at? Sorry, don't dull me. That is, I was, I was, I was talking to, I was talking to, uh, to my spouse. I was like, has there ever been a gayer movie made than Top Gun? I'm not sure there has. Oh come on! Whoa! Uh, I they love had to, some Toppy. They had to. Uh, they, they, they had to. They had to kill. They had to kill. They had to kill the only straight, the only like verifiably straight character in the entire film, so that Top, so wish. that. Uh, so the Tom Cruise could, He's, and his name was Goose. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, I have to say, I still think oh that maybe the gayest thing I've ever seen on film was uh, was Iceman going to Tom Cruise, like biting at him. <laughs> Come on, for those, for those listening, yes, he okay. sit down with those big chompers. <laughs> yeah, he did have some chompers too, man. Anyway, all right. So before you see, so before the the gold rush, Corporal Iceman, by the way, Corporal, thank you. Corporal, okay, thank you. Corporal Sorry, Iceman. so before the gold rush, most white men in the region had indigenous wives. Plains tribes were all matrilineal and matrilocal. So matrilineal meaning like you you um, traced your lineage through the mothers. Which is very logical because you always know who the mother is. You don't always know who the father is. So matrilineal, you know, a matrilineal lineage makes a lot of sense. And matrilocal means that uh, husbands lived with their wives' families, right? Uh, as, a, as opposed to, again, patrilineal, patrilocal. So husbands would live with their wives' families. And then the, the, the children of those partnerships were full members in the mother's clan, right? White husbands, therefore, gained valuable economic and personal status um, and indigenous ter- groups in turn like gained allies of their white in-laws, somebody that they hoped would represent their interests, you know, as family members uh, to when dealing with the government and, you know, things like that. So 
Intermarriages and the children they produced created an elaborate kind of web, a social web of white and indigenous relationships. And for generations, mixed race children were a kind of bridge between cultures. But as winter of 1858 approached, the white town boosters knew that indigenous groups were going to return to their winter lodgings in the area, the area of Denver City. So they made a point to invite intermarried white traders to join things like town planning councils. They would give them a choice of lots in the planning uh, of the town. They'd give them prominent roles in preliminary sort of government, you know, set up and things like that and establishing governments. I, I don't think so. That's how they get you. But they did this as a kind of a hedge against hostilities during the lean months, right? Indigenous groups would be uh, less likely to attack white settlements uh, in general. Um, and But they might raid for livestock and things like that when food was especially scarce. But the presence of these intermarried men might ha- kind of, again, serve as a hedge against, you know, raiding and things like that that indigenous groups might do to try and survive. However, the inherent value of those relational webs was about to change in the area. And it was going to change like almost overnight. And that's new and happens astonishingly fast. After that first winter, cities like Denver set deeper roots and gathered strength. Um, you know, more people come, you know, they get sort of, they have more money coming through, all that stuff. And the protective utility of those intermarriages become obsolete, especially when the population of armed people in a town swelled. Armed people, meaning armed white people in the town, swelled, right? Calm down and listen to me. Nobody's saying you can't own a gun. Nobody's even saying you can't carry a gun. All we're saying is you can't carry a gun in town. Uh, It becomes less and less necessary to rely on those indigenous allies or those relationship webs to try and fend off attacks. Okay. So intermarriage rapidly lost its economic and strategic value. New enterprises moved into the cities and pushed fur traders, who were primarily the people that were out there to begin with, uh, pushed them out to the kind of margins of society. As more Euro-Americans and their patrilineal families flowed into the area, white men couldn't see anything prestigious in indigenous wives. No matter who her father or uncles might be, intermarriage became a social dead end when white women arrived. So for most of these new immigrants... Uh, indigenous neighbors were seen somewhere between barely tolerable and barely human. They would not be allowed any meaningful roles in building new societies. They were unequal, uncitizens. A white man bound to an indigenous woman was now called a squall man, a term that carried, quote, a little whiff of dirty blanket and boiled dog, end quote. As she crossed the plains in 1863, Sarah Hively found that every, every trading post they passed reflected the old order that is a white trader and an indigenous wife. And she wrote about her reflection on that, uh, that old order writing quote, what a shame and disgrace this is to our country End quote. So change is coming in the form of white women. <laughs> Mixed blood children became an embarrassment in the white West. Western boosters looked East to populate their new cities. Yes. I, I'm just like, it's kind of a Trojan horse if you think about it. Like someone has, like, you have the entry point, and over time it grows. And it's not to be cliche, but whitewashing 
of a literally culture. Yeah. Literally. Mm-hmm. Literally. The mm-hmm. definition of it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, literally. And, and again, it's, it's sort of a, for the people directly impacted by this, the people who, you know, and again, okay. So to be fair, you know, some of these traders figure out how to navigate this new system and they do very well for themselves, but a lot can push to the margins and like any number of bad things happen. A lot of, there are a lot of sort of, for lack of better terms, divorces where, you know, there are a lot of white traders who are like, huh, this is no longer working out for me. You know, and so they just like ditch their families in order to try and improve their their status and their their economic circumstances. But like I said, there are some traders who do really well in the changing and sifting environment. But that's not the majority. The vast majority uh, things go downhill fast. And for mixed race kids, it's it's really uh, a tough uh, tough road ahead because their social role had been like the physical embodiment of this sort of bridge between cultures, and now. That's no longer useful as you, and, and as you will eventually have one group becoming more hostile or both groups becoming more hostile towards each other. Those mixed race kids sort of find themselves in the, the no man's land between them a lot of times. You know what I mean? Like, uh, with one foot in each world, but not belonging to either. More truth, more truth than you realize. No, no, no. I know it's, it continues to be, uh, there continue to be it's, it's issues. It's still very, very hard on. Yeah. Having having to a niece and a nephew that come from that, it's why been very difficult. Yep. No, I believe it. I believe it. All right. So, uh, what is that? Mixed blood children became an embarrassment in the white West. Western boosters looked to, e- to the east to populate the new cities. They wanted polite pretensions. People who wanted theaters and sidewalks, money and churches. Sidewalks. Sidewalks. Yeah. Sidewalks. Like yeah. Within well, one year, me more than a road less sidewalk. That is so <laughs> yes. annoying. Like, yo, go for a walk and there's no fucking sidewalk. No. I get so pissed. you walk on the grass. I'm like pissed, man. I'm like so pissed. It's raining. It's muddy. My favorite is when there's a when there's a grass path and it's all beaten down and like a tr- and like a track and you can see like this is where everyone walks all the time yes, and it's like yes. put in a sidewalk we... like it's clearly needed here. Yeah, yeah. You know what else is needed is that that ding that <laughs> just it. Hit at the perfect right moment. Like, oh my gosh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so within one year after discovering gold, every intermarried trader that was invited into town making was shoved out of the ranks of power within oh. one year. All I know is how they get you. That's how they get you. So these changing dynamics obviously challenged white traders but they were going to be catastrophic for their indigenous in-laws, right? Uh, it might've been hard for the, for the white traders, but they still had one, one thing going for them. They were white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so for all this awesome, neat, wonderful stuff, you know, you don't thank the Lord. You thank the whites. Thank the whites. Thank the whites. You know, you don't thank the Lord. You thank the whites. Gold discoveries push fur trading to the margins and centered the new enterprises of mining, freighting, ranching, and farming. New captains of industry measuring decisions in cash had no reason to cultivate relations with indigenous people. Their economic value was access to furs. Like that was the whole point of, of uh, intermarriage and all that was that you had greater access to buffalo furs or deer skins or whatever. American Indians were shoved to the bottom of the social ladder. Intermarriage went from social economic credit to a social and economic debit. Additionally, years of trading buffalo furs had reduced those populations, and the movement of white settlers just accelerated 
the decline of, of Buffalo, obviously. Recent studies have shown how, um, have shown how wagon ruts and overgrazed livestock devastated native grasses, leaving the root structures fatally stunted so they could never even come back uh, properly. White migration destroyed millions of acres of grazing land for bison and horses that were raised on grass rather than hay or oats. The grasses that returned year after year were smaller and less nutritious because of cows and wagon ruts. Um, you can actually still to this day, if you look at aerial uh, aerial photography or aerial video of the area, the Great Plains, you can see the wagon ruts still cutting the land all these years later in a way that is there those those routes those wagon ruts and all that are much deeper and bigger than the highways that now run through the same areas like it's it's amazing there are canals and highways and things like that that are a much smaller footprint like than the the wagon ruts that that have permanently scarred the landscape i mean it's like crisscross through the land and and of course, they destroy everything. You know, the wheels destroy everything they roll over as they're rolling through mud and stuff like that. They dig up the roots. But anyway, white people in their wagons, man. White people in their wagons. Yeah. Good old, good old white people. The uh, yeah. So anyway, this was, of course, this problem, of course, was compounded as immigration increased, uh, especially with 100,000 people in the first year of the gold rush alone. Right. Like, oh, yeah. you know, the huge numbers. So it just. What was already a small problem becomes a massive problem. Well, not Can a small problem. The, yeah. Are you going to do the prospector's voice at all in this episode? I don't think so. Oh, I don't know. It. You know. You know oh, what? Come on. My, my, my father pointed this out, and I'm gonna I'm gonna call you out on it, Brent. Mm. Your voice isn't that far off of Yosemite Sam to start with. So all you got to <laughs> do is just kind of grab gravitate towards that, and you're good to go. I'm the rootinest, tootinest. Yeah, okay. I'm, um, I'm glad you did that because I always go to like uh, I'll say I'll say and yeah, but I don't know why, but I go there in my head. So I'm glad you went the right direction. Yeah. <laughs> um I put a little clip of him in the last episode where he, he uh Yosemite Sam. He says uh oh, says oh something like uh <laughs> and I ain't no Namby Pamby. Um Anyway, whatever it's 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 he sounds like my uncle jimmy to me for some reason so uh whatever okay i don't know i, I, don't probably, I probably have some tra- no probably have some trauma to deal with there i don't know i don't something i gotta gotta grapple with okay um where i'm like yosemite sam reminds me of my uncle i've got to figure that out um anyway prior to 1840 the front range of the rockies along the south platte was a neutral contested terrain. Threats of war between the Cheyenne, Arapaho, Comanche, and Kiowa kept hunters away for fear of starting a war. It became a natural preserve of sorts, uh, and bison populations swelled. Now, these groups all made peace in 1840. Cheyennes and Arapahos began living there in that that front end of the the Rockies year-round. The abundance of food made nomadic life unnecessary. So starting in 1840, they kind of settle down and like live settled lives for a period. However, uh, between trade needs and tribal usage, the bison in the area were quickly overhunted and pushed about a hundred miles East by the 1850s. So like, it doesn't take long. I mean, because again, like you, you think about these people, these groups of people who are like nomadic, but they're nomadic because they have to be as soon as they, they have the opportunity. They're like, well, Hey, there's plenty of food here. We don't have to leave. They don't, they build permanent structures. They, you know what I mean? But they, but then, 
you know, like the, the conditions that allowed that to become a nature preserve are destroyed. And so within 10 years, they're like, huh, the population, the, the bison are not coming back because we keep murdering them here. So, uh, and of course they're trading them. So they're, they're hunting way more than they need for food and for clothing and for shelter. So, you know, again, they're like over hunting them to trade, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So by the time the first prospectors arrived in the summer of 1858, they did not see a single indigenous person at that front range of the Rockies. Not one, not one indigenous person in the area. They moved to hunt during the summer and they returned to make winter lodges. Like that's kind of what they did. They would go a hundred miles East to hunt and then they'd come back in the winter. Just 15 years earlier than those first prospectors arrived, the region was completely teeming with Arapahoes and Cheyenne throughout the whole summer. The land where Green Russell first found gold dust was unpopulated when he arrived, but was the was like vital Cheyenne and Arapaho land. From their perspective, they were simply away at work for the summer. Like, they no more thought they had abandoned the land than you think you abandoned your home while you're away at work, right? Like, the same mentality. Like, this is... We've just gone to work. We're coming back, you know. Uh, so when Arapahoes, led by Left Hand and Little Raven, returned home, they found whites laying out streets and marking lots, using the limited resources that natives relied on to get through the scarcity of winter. They were gone Left- a while. Huh? I mean, they must have been gone a while, though. Yeah, they'd go for the summer. They would go work <laughs> like- for the summer. They would go hunt right. all summer long, and then they'd all come summer. back for the winter. Like crabbing in Alaska. Same kind mm-hmm. of deal. Exactly. 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 Like so. Yep. So yeah. So they would go. They would go. Wait. Work for the summer. Anyway. Right. So when Arapahoes led by Left Hand and Little Raven returned home, they oh I said all that. Um, Left Hand reportedly told the miners that were laying out these towns, "Quote, go away. You come to kill our game, to burn our wood, and to destroy our grass." End quote. The Arapahoes complained to the to the Indian agent William Bent. Quote. We want you to do something for us concerning our country. The whites are about taking possession of it, laying off town lots, end quote. Ben had no idea what to tell his friends and kinmen, kinsmen. You see, Ben was one of these who had uh, an indigenous wife. He'd been there a long time, you see. So he's, he's part of this old network. So he wrote about this invasion in December uh, to the Bureau of Indian Affairs, you know, to, the, to the Indian agency. Ben said, quote, The Cheyennes and Arapahoes are very uneasy and restless about their country. They hadn't received any compensation or reached any agreement about their land. That goes very hard for them. Some have been talking very hard against the whites. End quote. Excuse me. Don't talk hard to me. (laughs) (laughs) I know you you have to kind of get yourself into the uh, the 19th century (laughs) mentality because the the talk's pretty funny. But we should bring it back. Mm-hmm. Don't you don't you talk hard to me? <laughs> <laughs> now, Left Hand and Little Raven were what were known as peace chiefs, aka oh, the lefty. stranger. <laughs> oh, lefty! <laughs> oh, lefty! The stranger. Oh, lefty! <laughs> ah, sorry, Left Hand. <laughs> ah, may may you rest in peace, my friend. I'm sorry. Anyway, they were peace chiefs. That is to say, their primary function within the indigenous community was within their groups, was to try and resolve conflicts both among their people and between others sometimes, right? They did not want confrontation with the whites, and they hoped that they could find a third way, like intermarriage had been for many generations. 
That first winter, there were moments that made a third way seem possible. A delegation of Cheyenne and Arapaho joined in the Christmas festivities in Denver City, feasting and racing a prized mule against the miners' horses. Soon after New Year, whites visited the Indian village. They roasted two oxen and they served heaps of dried apples. About 500 men, 400 women and children all feasted. Even in May 1859, Little Raven went to Denver City and was celebrated with a feast in his honor. One man wrote how impressed he was, saying, quote, and I'm sorry, this is very funny. Like, man, I was I was so impressed by that little Indian man. You know, quote, he handles his knife and fork and smokes his cigars like a white man. And quote, did you, you do that again? But yeah, like, yeah, Yosem- like Yosemite Sam. <laughs> I love that. I like when he just does the voices. Yeah. I'll give you a moment. I don't even know if I can. Saying, quote, <laughs> that was good. he handles this knife and fork and smokes his cigars like a white man. I don't know. End quote. I'll, I'll count it. I like okay. it. Okay. I like it. But forward thinking whites were simply biding their time. There was internal division among indigenous people as well. Uh, one guy, heap of whips, headed a faction of young men who saw no future in friendly relationships with whites. They saw how whites disregarded the treaty and stole their land. He believed that they had to be driven out or killed before it was too late. The split between heap of whips and little raven reflected long-standing debates among natives. They questioned the wisdom of trade, specifically how much trade to have with white folks. They noticed the environmental impact, and this led to multifactionalism. Some wanted limited uh, trade with and and some tolerance of whites. Some wanted to kill them or push them out, either accommodation or war, and, of course, degrees between those two extremes. Peace chiefs, like Old Tobacco and Yellow Wolf, promoted expansive trade and a peaceful coexistence. And by the time of the gold rush, another peace chief had emerged and was ascending the leadership structure. Black Kettle. Leaders like Yellow Wolf and Black Kettle were liaisons, and they sought accommodation with whites. They're motivated by kinship and economic concerns, but also a practical awareness of the technological advantages whites possessed. They reasoned that they found ways to live in relative peace with Comanche, Lakota, and Kiowa. They could do so with whites. Obviously, every tribe had confrontational leaders too, right? Generally men whose status was most tied to warfare. By the end of the 1840s, there were six ancient military societies that had grown popular and prominent. The Kit Foxes, Crazy Dogs, Bowstrings, Elk Scrapers, Red Shields, and Dog Soldiers. These, these militaries... Names, I know. These well, names are amazing. <laughs> Can you recap the names again for me? Because Sure. Like... <laughs> We're only going to focus on one of these, but I just I do love them, so I listed listed them all. These five or six six military societies had become prominent: the Kit Foxes, cr- the Crazy Dogs, okay. the Bowstrings, the Elk Scrapers, the Red Shields, and the Dog Soldiers. Did they all have like? Did they all have leather jackets that they wore that had these like emblems on them and stuff? <laughs> They're not a biker gang. Um, uh, no, but like. Uh, Right in Mar- Maryland Terrapin because he's wearing the hat at the moment. But, like, but that's it's the, literally that's yeah. the label. It's mm-hmm. like whatever they're seeing you wearing right now. What he is he is Jedi and 
<laughs> this, is a, this is a Pulp Fiction is, shirt. Thank you very much. You are, yeah, but as it looks like Boba Fett at the same yes. time. So yeah, it, like is. A, it is. It is. It's ju- it's Pulp Fett. Yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, no. I mean, it's it's you know, this is no. I mean, again, like I see really no distinction here between like this and like uh, yeah. Honestly, I sort of joked about them not being biker gangs, but it's a real similar kind of thing, right? Like it's it's people with a with a a shared interest and sort of camaraderie, and and you sort of you know have organized around a kind of a more militant stance. But what that means in practice is still sort of up in the air. Um, anyway, the these military societies would uh, draw recruits from across kin and clan so they weren't you know it wasn't like tribal you know what i mean like you you might have members of of the kit foxes or or the elk scrapers or whatever that that went across i know went across you know eight nine ten different tribes and countless clan groups or or kin networks within those tribes these societies increasingly held the kind of hardliners together uh in you know like a, in, a, in a kind of uh consolidated purpose those who were inclined to peace turned to a different sort of institution. It was called the Council of 44. Again, this is another ancient tradition. The council was composed of elders known for their wisdom, their insight, and their restraint. They were often renowned fighters in their youth who chose a path path of peace in their later years. So tension between the Council of 44 and these military societies would sort of grow through the 1850s as conditions changed. Okay. Um, now, longstanding pressures on indigenous groups from white encroachment and the government's consistent failure to make annuity payments, uh, annuity commitments in full or on time left indigenous people in dire straits. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking money for nothing. In 1856, <laughs> uh, the Indian agent Thomas Twist wrote, yeah, wrote, quote, <laughs> I, I can't do the thing. <laughs> they were suffering. I can't. I can't do it. I can't do. I can't gonna, do, I can't do this quote. At least. I mean, come on. Are you? Gonna, <laughs> you're you're going to throw money for nothing out there. Are you at least going to did they the get song? their chicks for free? <laughs> you're talking about free women now, aren't you? They come they on. wanted their MTV. What can I say? Oh, I knew um, it. So okay, sorry. The Indian agent Thomas Twist wrote. I can't, I can't do an accent for this quote for Is sure. A okay. relative of Oliver. I'll twist. Yes. Yeah. But, but Thomas twist, Thomas twist was richer than Oliver. He could afford a second S instead of having to settle for that second, that T. Lisa, I want some more. What? Lisa, I want some more. More? So he said the, delinquent like yes. uncle absentee okay. yes uh he wrote quote they were suffering starving they suffer for want of food and become actually emaciated it's a good time to laugh i'm just, Those, no, I'm, just I'm drawing the relevance to oliver right what a bunch right. of sick goats. Right. They're starving. We're laughing, howling out loud. <laughs> I mean. Now get out of this garden section. You make me sick. Sheesh. <laughs> and Oliver, you're just like chasing it. I great. know. I know. I didn't. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. So 
<laughs> so let me, let me just try again. They were suffering, <laughs> starving. They suffer for want of food and maltes become actually emaciated. I cannot believe this. More, more, please. <laughs> I need food. The very old people and young children frequently die from starvation. End quote. Yes. Can I please have some more? Monsters. Monsters, oh. both of you. <laughs> but wait, this is a dark story we're hearing. Sorry, we're supposed to be sad about this. <laughs> oh, uh, too good. This, this is our podcast, Unbalanced Views of History, where one person with human emotions tells a story to two monsters <laughs> who were born born without empathy. Let's see how it goes. Good God. I need more Don't, porridge. Hey, tell me more of the Dying. story, please. Uh, indeed. <laughs> Ten months later, you know, after this, <laughs> uh, Colonel Edwin Sumner, uh, his expedition burned 200 lodges to the ground. By 1858, tensions were high. Returning home to find whites laying out town, uh, laying out towns, nearly broke the peace. One year later, on September 18th, Twist, not Twist, Twist, <laughs> met with peace chiefs at Fort Laramie and commended them for avoiding the gold seekers. And one of the attendees replied, quote, Our old people and little children are hungry for many days, and some die. Our sufferings are increasing every winter. Our horses, too, are dying because we ride them so far to get a little game for our lodges, end quote. And then he pleaded, quote, we wish to live, end quote. Two days earlier, some 2,500 warriors camped nearby, and William Bent went out to meet them. The leaders promised peace, but Bent sensed, Bent sensed the suppressed rage in the group. Quote, a smothered passion for revenge agitates these Indians. The failure of food the encircling encroachment of the white population and the exasperating sense of decay and impending extinction with which they are surrounded. End quote. So yeah, the situation's good. It's good. Things are good. Given all this, the indigenous response was actually shockingly restrained, right? Remember Daniel blue? Mike, you remember Daniel blue, Daniel the guy blue. who, the guy who had to eat uh, a stranger and then two of his two brothers in order to survive. Mm-hmm. It was an Arapaho that saved him, took him to a, a newly established stage station um, during a snowstorm in 1858 on a treacherous strip between Smoky Hill and Sand Creek. Migrants were given food and water by indigenous people, indigenous people who were starving. They even gave a language lesson. Uh, they were even given a language lesson by, quote, a very pretty young squall, end quote. Ooh. I knew you would do that. You're just, it's perfect. You're just so. <laughs> Awkward. Do you guys need a room or what? <laughs> the heavy breathing doesn't help, Mike. <laughs> I'm just imagining what a beautiful little squall I'm looks like. Sure you are. I know you are. I know you are. <laughs> Most of, uh, most of the contact along the road was friendly. Uh, after eating together with a large group of indigenous horsemen, some Argonauts put on a show. 
They stood on their heads and did somersault to the cheers and delights, delight of the natives who were then subsequently disappointed when the women refused to do the same. I can't imagine why the women wouldn't stand on their heads and do somersaults, but okay. Um, come on ladies. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. Something about that story. I just like reading between the lines. I got a kick out of that story. Uh, oh, the ladies won't do it. Nah. Um, party poopers. Party poopers. I mean, stand on your heads, ladies. What? What skirts? Come on. Um, other travelers, travelers entertained Indian guests with mouth harps and showing off ambrotype pictures of their children. Indigenous people also stole or demanded livestock as toll payments for passing through. Whites described them as lazy beggars holding out their hands for a dole. But for indigenous people, asking or taking seemed fair recompense, right? Whites were taking from them. They were destroying the grasses needed for horse and buffalo. They were leaving deep wagon wheel ruts that were dangerous hazards for horses and buffalo. Many legs were broken by misstep in unseen ruts and travelers pushed bison into narrower and narrower spaces, which would then bring various indigenous groups into competition for the limited resources, which then brought them into conflict. Groups that were not in conflict now were having tension as they fought for limited resources. So for them, this was like fair recompense, like, hey, you're destroying our, like, our ability to feed ourselves, so we're going to take some cows. Anyway, um, and you're crossing our land, and you're destroying our land in the process, right? By 1858, the dog soldiers were the largest military society in the Western Plains. They lived in between the overland routes, uh, where their freedom on horseback continued largely kind of unmolested. They generally avoided white settlers until it became impossible. They watched their land encircled like a noose around their neck, tightened by the Argonauts rushing through. In 1861, as American soldiers marshaled for civil war in Colorado, six Cheyenne and four Arapaho chiefs signed the Treaty of Fort Wise. Among them, Black Kettle, Little Raven, and Left Hand. The treaty ceded more than 90% of the Fort Laramie. Yeah. Well, the treaty ceded more than 90% of the Fort Laramie Treaty uh, lands to the United States. Now, the chiefs did not represent a majority of those tribes. They, in fact, represented a very, very slim minority. Um, the treaty restricted Cheyennes and Arapahoes to eastern Colorado. Dog mm-hmm. soldiers and many others refused the legitimacy of the treaty and continued to live and hunt in the bison-rich areas of the old treaty. Serious mm-hmm. conflict kind of becomes inevitable as a result, though. But to be clear, the sordid events that would follow were a direct result of the United States government inaction and U.S. government failure. The stories people imagined about the Western Plains involved horses or gold in its many forms. One was a story of horse people, independent and free living, right? Living off the resources provided by the landscape, supplemented by trade. The other story was of extractive industry, mining, timber, ranching, stripping away the landscape, replacing it with single crop fields and invasive livestock that destroyed native grasses. And of course, heavy equipment, smokestacks, belching black clouds into the sky, locomotives, refineries, dynamite. The government had to guide one story or the other in order to avoid horror. And by the 1840s, some idiot agents already recognized the choice ahead. Quote, either an army or an annuity, either an inducement must be offered to the Indians greater than the gains of plunder, or a force must be at hand able to restrain and check their depredations. 
Any compromise between the two systems will be only productive of mischief and liable to the miseries of failure, end quote. In other words, indigenous people had to be bought off or crushed and subsumed. Anything else would be inhuman. And that was what Indian agents wrote to their advisors in, or their supervisors in Washington. This is what we need to do. Otherwise, what we're going to have is a horror show. Okay. <laughs> now, the United States, perfect though it is, I know, Mike, greatest country yes, in the world, it is. chose right. to do chose to do neither of these things. Ah, damn it. From the earliest treaties, annuities were late and always insufficient. In some cases, even if the annuities had been given fully and on time, they were just a pittance. A few days' rations. Two days' rations for a freighter, actually. So two days. Here you go. Here's two days' worth of rations for for everybody. Mm -hmm. Indian agents constantly pleaded for more rations. Remember, peace was achieved on the promise... uh, that's one bottle down. <laughs> Peace was achieved that rations would be given to make up for what was lost. The story passed down is usually of an almighty American cavalry crushing indigenous opposition, forcing people onto reservations through military might. But that's completely inaccurate. The military was always inadequate. The truth is, to supply a force necessary to police indigenous people would have required a massive investment in the food fuel, and resources necessary for the unpredictable life on the plains that native people themselves found in such short supply. In other words, as other whites transformed the West into a new vision, the military would have had to reproduce essentially what the horse nomads previously had envisioned. It was an expense the government would never, ever cover. Instead, they just seized a few sites with resource access reducing the total resources available to indigenous groups. So what happened was that indigenous people were slowly starved and starved and starved while they were expected to suffer quietly and in peace. Mike, what are you doing? I just had to spit something out of my mouth. He is excited by this. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I almost lost my, uh, lost my drink. Sorry. You're like a heavy, 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 uh, Heavy breathing because um, to describing marginalized people getting screwed over. You're like, oh, oh baby. Oh. Now, wait, wait oh. a second. Tell me more. Oh. <laughs> we might have a new song. <laughs> tell me more. Tell me more. No, that's not the song. I'm like, sheesh. <laughs> he's going to end up in a Grease freaking theme song. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> You can argue that it's you can argue that it's coincidental, but uh, I don't know. I'm on the verge of tears about these people. (laughs) By the way, my Christmas gift to you, Mike, is going to be a new headset. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, I like this headset. (laughs) Look, got the little microphone. Yeah, we get all of it too. Mm -hmm. I told you, live it, live the boom above your nose, and you're good. uh, You're right, right there. (laughs) All right. So they were expected to suffer quietly and in peace. At the same time, their control over the resources necessary (laughs) to survive. That's what I mean. So, I mean, again, I'm just trying to like, like, you know, the situation is one where you're like, you know, if you, if you do the things necessary to survive, like Mm -hmm. the the government is going to try and crack down on that. And so you're like, well, 
what are these people supposed to do? Like you, like the government, the the U.S. really handled this whole situation so poorly because they they made it they made it bad for everybody involved, including the government. Like every everybody lost. It was so just everybody screws this up. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody in charge, like screw you know uh, of of you know managing the situation, screws up. Anyway, so yeah. at the same time that indigenous people are expected to starve and suffer quietly. Their control over the resources they needed just to survive were being destroyed before their very very eyes by every wagon wheel and cow that comes through the region. And so many accepted reservations as a last resort for survival. They lost control of their resources by following the rules, by doing what was agreed upon. But before their loss of resources was acute, they were free to resist, at least for now. The government was not going to spend the resources necessary to prevent it, and was content to let the so-called pioneers act as an advanced like party, a military party. And if some were killed, that would justify disproportionate retaliation. Likewise, if indigenous leaders couldn't control their whole population, perhaps the whole population should suffer, even as the U.S. failed to control the actions of its own population. Incidentally, government's two options for dealing with the indigenous people corresponded with the two factions among the natives themselves, right? Peaceful trade or resentment and hostility, right? That's the same thing, both the same thing going on on both sides. The treaty of Fort Wise was problematic from the jump. First off, no Northern Cheyenne or Arapaho were involved in the treaty. So that's, that's a problem. Uh, the treaty included a government pledge for 15 years worth of annuities, a promise of protection, the government would provide livestock, equipment, they would plow and fence the fields, build a sawmill, build mechanic shops, and housing. That and was I the agreement. That. So the whole idea behind this treaty was indigenous people were going to have to learn to become farmers and live in this new economic white. structure. Yes, they have to be white. But That's right. <laughs> because, but like this reminded me so much of like when... Uh, when um, when they were uh, trying to sell NAFTA to the American people and like the whole Clinton uh, administration was like, yes, it's very sad that we're going to like shut down all these coal mines and this coal processing and everything in Appalachia, but we'll just, everybody can just learn how to code. Like that's what we'll do. We'll teach everybody how to code. And it's like, okay, that sounds really great, but it's like, that's not something you just do. You know what I mean? Like it requires a transitional period. It's going to require a tremendous investment. It's going to require time, money, and and energy to do a thing like that. And then, you know, like the government is like, and instead of us doing any of those things, we're just going to farm it out to some people who maybe are are going to say, hey, we're going to try and make a lot of money doing this. And they just come in and, and, you know, uh, exploit the people there who are now desperate because you've taken away their living. You know what I mean? So, I mean, it's this, it's the same thing. We, we, our government continues to do the exact same thing, uh, to marginalized people. Um, just it's, it's not any different anyway. So the point was the government promised that they would help this transition. Mm-hmm. Okay. Of course they did. So let's see how it goes. They had their fingers crossed. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. fingers on the scale, maybe mm-hmm. <laughs> leaders like black kettle saw in this treaty a new story for Indian people to tell, to abandon the vision of independence that was embodied in the horse and to embrace a white vision of industrialization. 
to compete and live on white terms, but with equal footing. The government would assist the transition. Meanwhile, Indian agents acknowledged the Northern groups still owned the land from the 1851 treaty. At the same time, the federal government established a territorial government. In other words, the federal government simultaneously recognized that Colorado belonged to whites and belonged to Cheyennes, Arapahoes, and Utes. Two Utes. The who? The two what? The, the what? The two what? Wah. The two, two what? what? <laughs> that, the two what? Two Utes. His response was so perfect, though. <laughs> I don't know if that was on, on purpose or you editing, Brian, but... Mm. When I re-listened to that episode, I get the wah. <laughs> like it was just so subtle, <laughs> perfect. It was so perfect. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So you see what the government's. So you see what the government is doing, right? The federal government is like, this land all belongs to these indigenous groups. Can I ask also, a quick question, Brian? Yes. Just interrupt. Just interrupt. Just to set. I want to understand. Sure. Are we talking about the wah? Dan- are we talking about like <laughs> dances with wolves Indians or are we talking like Indians with like suits on walking down the street? Like, like what, what year is this? Are we talking about? I'm trying to get in my mind. With, like the eight, I'm trying 18, to picture what this looks like. Are, these, 18, are they all speaking the same language? Like, no, we're, like, they're different, different groups. They're different groups with different languages. It's gotta and be chaotic. I mean, how in the but, hell does that happen? But you have you have all these Indian agents who have uh, who have these in, who like have intermarried for generate you know mm-hmm. for generations and who are you know who have uh, indigenous wives and so and a lot of these traders who become Indian agents are like they 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 know the language of their wife you know or wives as mm-hmm. the case may be because mm-hmm. that was still fine and uh, you know so they they might speak you know they might speak. Um, several dialects of Cheyenne or, or, or Sioux or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the, the idea that like everybody in a nation speaks the same language is, uh, is silly. I mean, it's not, that's not even the case. Um, it's, it's never been the case anywhere, really. It's not the case now. I mean, um, I mean, I think there's a primary language in every nation. it, like but English. again, that English is spoken here. I mean, yes, I there's mean, other languages, but, but that's, mean, but that's, yeah, I mean, and okay. So you're talking about in the United States, but like, but you're talking about the United States in 2023, not in 1858, where my God, you, you've just taken over all this territory from Mexico. Um, you know, people speak Spanish sure. throughout and there are a number of indigenous languages. You have all these immigrants who are sort of pouring into the country from all over Europe that speak whatever language from whatever country they're from, whatever town they're from, uh, you know, whatever, I mean, whatever region they're from, you know, there are regional dialects. Even we have regional dialects. I mean, there are words that make little sense. I mean, we kind of get it or whatever. I mean, not to, not to, uh, I mean, we all understand that, you know, y'all, Yins and use all kind of mean the same thing. Um, but like, but we understand that now, but certainly in a, in certain times there would have been like a, what the hell is a yins? Um, what the hell is a y'all? You, you know what I mean? Like just y'all. because you were from a different area, you wouldn't necessarily, you know, you wouldn't understand regional dialects per se. And then of course, and like I said, you've got all these different, uh, you know, uh, all these different languages coming over here. I mean, um, from European immigrants coming into this country and a lot of the people moving west are exactly that they're the european immigrants pouring into the country and being sh- uh, sort of shuffled out west um so yeah i mean language barriers th- that's just a normal 
That might it's, be the fanciest way I've ever heard y'all y'all actually mm-hmm. explain, which is just truncated you all. Well, sure, y'all. sure, but um, <laughs> but you all is also also a weird uh, turn of phrase, as opposed like, to use guys, use guys or yin, or yins. I mean, yins guys. is you know use uh, yins is just yuins. I've yep, never yins. heard yins. I don't know where's yins. Pennsylvania, is that right? Okay, that is well, that correct. Explains a lot. Yeah, I have never heard yins. Pennsylvania is yins. Anyway, use. All right, so but what you see the 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 a right now though is that you have the federal government simultaneously recognizing that like there's a territorial government controlled by white Euro Americans, and also that territorial government is over land that the government is also acknowledging is owned by these various indigenous groups. So you see, there's a pretty big problem there. Like you're basically acknowledging the ownership of the land by separate groups at the same time. This is a problem. A Colorado editor wrote at the time, quote, it, it would puzzle a Philadelphia lawyer to tell whether Utes, Arapahoes or uncle Sam owns the ground on which the improvements of Colorado are made. End quote. So, I mean, even at the time, people were like, I don't even know who owns this land. Um, the best that can be said of the treaty was that some of the more peaceful bands of some part of the Cheyennes and Arapahoes agreed to open some of the Central Plains, though nobody knew which parts. And this vague concession was contingent on the government meeting significant economic uh, commitments. So that's really all the treaty does is makes things way more confusing and solves really very little. Um, but anyway, when Black Kettle was recalled to Fort Wise to sign the official treaty in November 1861, he learned that the old annuities, which were already months overdue, were still absent. When food, when the food finally arrived, it was appallingly bad. Quote, why does the great father not send us such goods as the whites use? End quote. The treaty was an experiment in allotment. Every man, woman, and child would have 40 acres to farm. Thomas Jefferson's old dream of a yeoman republic. This, TJ believed, would secure liberty. Everyone with 40 acres, a frying pan, and a shotgun could tell the world to go to hell if they so chose. It was here that the government established that 40 acres was the minimum parcel necessary for survival, for independence. This idea was reiterated. Huh? (laughs) That's all. Well, in a yeoman (laughs) republic. This was the idea that was reiterated when William Tecumseh Sherman issued Special Field Order 15 when he parceled Confederate plantation land in 40-acre allotments to former slaves that his army had freed, also known as land reform or redistribution. We've seized the land of the enemy and parceled it out to to the people who were formerly enslaved here. Right? (laughs) 40 acres and a mule. Yep. This is where this all comes from. The U.S. estimated that only about 10 acres needed to be under cultivation at any time for survival, but you rotated your fields, right? Anyway, and as usual, the U.S. failed its promises at Fort Wise. By fall of 1864, three years later, only about 250 total acres were under cultivation. So by their own estimates, the U.S. took three years to cultivate enough reservation land to feed maybe 25 people. So good treaty. <laughs> in 1853, right? So years before, 
Indian Good agent Thomas Fitzpatrick had warned that reservations would not work. He wrote <laughs> that massive amounts of aid in conjunction with tremendous investment in training programs, teaching nomadic hunters how to farm would both mm-hmm. would both be required. He cautioned that a cultural transition would require more patience than merely teaching skills. It would require enough time to reshape the cultural identity of the people. And the U.S. would have to provide for their needs until such time that they could support themselves in this fundamentally new way, a completely new cultural identity. He was also concerned that the more closely confined reservations would quickly become, quote, hospital wards of cholera, smallpox, influenza, and other disease, end quote. The experiment of the Fort Wise Treaty from 1861 to 64 proved him right on all fronts. Starvation and disease became the hallmarks of the reservation. And so, by spring of 1864, things seemed prime for conflict. The opening salvo began on April 12th of 1864. Several dog soldiers were accused of stealing four mules and they exchanged fire with members of the first Colorado. There were a few injured on each side. Two wounded soldiers died days later. After the incident, the reservation Indians nervously relocated near the dog soldiers in May. Lieutenant George Ear set out after the skirmish with about 50 men. George Ear? Yeah, George, George e- I don't know. E A Y R E. I don't know. Okay. Air, I appreciate the, no the the spelling help because I'm just like oh, they're just getting lazy now. Like <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. George George Ear. We're yeah. going to go with that name. Lieutenant George Ear. <laughs> so, Lieutenant George Ear set out after the skirmish with about 50 men and armed with two howitzers. He approached a camp near Smoky Hill across the border in Kansas, and out of his jurisdiction. The Cheyenne stood their ground. Among those at camp was a member of the Council of 44 and a signatory to the Treaty of Fort Wise, Starving Bear. One year earlier, Starving Bear had been among the delegation that visited President Lincoln in Washington. Lincoln gave Starving Bear a peace medal and promised personal and government friendship. Starving Bear, upon seeing the soldiers, calmed his people, and he was wearing his, the peace medal from Lincoln around his neck. He rode slowly towards Ear's cavalry in order to parley with them. Ear's men were drawn into battle lines. When Starving Bear was 20 yards away, approaching slowly and peacefully, the Americans opened fire. Then, several cavalrymen rode to Starving Bear, where he lay wounded. Presidential peace medal around his neck and they shot him again on the ground killing him the Cheyennes the Cheyennes were not surprisingly furious the the names are great like I I just can't I can't wait for pooping dog to make an appearance like (laughs) pooping dog (laughs) yeah serving bear pooping dog like (laughs) go on yeah yeah Um, so the Cheyennes were furious and they went to gather their weapons as the cavalry opened fire, shooting grape shot from the howitzers. 
25 Cheyenne were killed. Black Kettle rode frantically among his people, desperately calming them down, preventing retaliation, successfully <laughs> pacifying his brethren for now. So, like, just, to, I mean, so dude has a presidential peace medal given to him by Abraham Lincoln, rides uh-huh. out slowly, you know, his hand up going, no, no, let's talk. And they shoot him down, and then they ride up to him and kill him while he's injured on the ground. Just dust him. Peace medal laying on his chest. Whack. And bla- and then and then they fire grape shot into the crowd. And even with all that, Black Kettle rides out and he says, "Everybody, calm down. Let's not be rash." <laughs> his, yeah, is is crowd a term? I should know. I just want to make sure because you say grape shot into the crowd, and I just want to make sure I'm crowd, not missing crowd, out. Crowd, crowd, the crowd okay. of Cheyenne. No, no, no. Okay, into the group, just making sure. Okay, no, into the group. And he still manages to like visual with grape shot right now. Sure, sure, sure. Got him right in the crowd. Um, So, I mean, you got 25 dead, you got 25 dead Cheyenne, and still Black Kettle is riding among these people going, everybody just, everybody just take a breath. I know this looks bad, but everybody calm down. Can you do that as Yosemite Sam again? Oh, no, no, I cannot. Everybody just like I can't do it. But you no. do it. Like, yeah, it's great. I cannot. I cannot. Not for this. And so, in 1864, as Abraham Lincoln faced an election challenge from his former general George McClellan, the situation on the Western Plains was even more tense. Tempers bubbled up. An open warfare threatened to boil over. And gentlemen, that is where we'll end for the day. Next time, we'll take a look at events that occurred in the wake of Starving Bear's murder. So, Mike, I I had originally hoped to do a second part of this, but that's okay. (laughs) Your nine o'clock hard stop, whatever. Turns your camera off, which is... Well, I'm I'm actually, I had to walk the dog. That's why I'm... I'm, I'm just standing outside, but I didn't want you to look at the inside of my pocket. Mike, how can mm-hmm. the good people find us? Oh, they can find us pretty much everywhere at this point. We're blowing up, but you can find us on the podcast, like Podbean, Apple Podcast. You can send us any suggestions that you like. Um, you can send us donations to unbalancedviews at gmail.com. We're looking for some sponsors. Um, and then, of course, you can catch us pretty much every Saturday night as long as Brian does his job and gets these episodes out. If not, well, here, you can yeah. you can send the email and you can complain. Well, and any suggestions you like have, like like I have some suggestions and he doesn't listen to me. So if you guys want to send in suggestions like maybe some really cool I want to hear <laughs> really cool really cool background sound effects like you know that kind of stuff. Um I want to hear my suggestions. Hear. I want to hear my That's suggestions. That, that is my suggestions. That is my suggestion. Just more and more, more and more sound effects. So, so, okay, fine. I gave you that. That's your win. You got to win. That's your W. Take your W. Um, Take your W. Uh, I I was worried about being too hokey and you were right. And I was wrong. All right. So fine. Um, You know, blind, uh, this is blind squirrel finds an acorn every now and then. It's right. Goes. Clock, you know, we know how it goes. Right. I don't want to talk about, I don't want to talk about clocks anymore. 
That's right. Oh God. <laughs> Don't bring that enough. story back. Done enough clocks. Uh, <laughs> enough clocks. On my side. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good on I'm good on clocks for a while. I'm good on time. Um okay, so yeah, um yeah, like, subscribe, click the bell, click the you know, click the things. Um please consider leaving a review, like five star reviews, uh apparently really help. That's what they tell me. Uh Garrick, thank you again for joining us. Mike, thanks for showing up timely, as usual. Always, always. Uh, I did want to say this is a this is a uh, a biweekly podcast that, because of the length and breadth of the story that we're doing on Colorado, <laughs> I've been trying to do weekly episodes of. Um, but it is this is a biweekly pro- podcast that I am trying to keep a weekly pace on right now. So we'll see. But keep in mind. Anything that comes out more recent than once every two weeks is a bonus. That is, uh, that is my goal. But, um, yeah, we'll see. Yes. Um, you mean like, you mean like misogyny, Mike, is that going to get released? <laughs> no, it's on the editing floor. It's, it's, it's on my, it's on my, my to-do list. It's on my long to-do list. Um, so, uh, yeah, Derek, thanks as always. Thank you for joining us. Yes. Brother. Uh, and, uh, you know, you did a great job filling in last week. We, we recorded a one-hour episode in four and a half hours. Um, <laughs> it was like the first time you and I tried to record, Mike. Uh, it just went everywhere. Um, I remember that. You know, hey, we had fun. It was fun. Uh, and, and, and both of us might have gotten intoxicated. Uh, no, <laughs> fake news. <laughs> you know, I, I had a lot of empty cans and i saw an almost empty bottle on your end so you know uh, or an empty bottle to, yeah you switched to, i have switched to wine this week because i'm like i can't do a half bottle of whiskey every time we do this like that's just too much i have to have boundaries yeah yeah, yeah for sure yeah i mean i kept myself limited to two two measly beers tonight so all right uh unbalanced listeners thank you again for tuning in uh, we'll talk to you next time, or you'll we'll talk to you. I don't even know how to end these things. Talk at Bye-bye. you. Bye. <laughs> See you guys. <laughs>